I'm in the Daily Mail today, actually. I've written this big piece for them about going on a silent retreat in, in uh, France. And not not even no able talking. to say, can I have a cup of tea? No, or? no, no. No talking at all. Silent. You hand on your phone when you get there and you take a vow of silence till you leave. So I think I'd drive myself crazy being silent. It's a great antidote to my normal world. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And today in my prickly chair is the formidable Eleanor Mills, a British journalist, writer, broadcaster, campaigner, author, media consultant, and multi, multi award winning editor. She spent some 22 years with the Times newspapers and most notably as the editorial director of the Sunday Times and editor of its magazine until March 2020. As chair of women in journalism, she actively promoted and campaigned to improve opportunities for women within the profession and to drive increased diversity across all areas. Eleanor is now the incredible founder of Noon, an online media platform and community for women in their midlife, or as Eleanor likes to call them, Queen Ages. Created through her passion to change the narrative society tells about women in their midlife, Noon is all about addressing the topics and concerns that other sites and publications shy away from. This is the age of opportunity, and I absolutely hear that. Welcome, Eleanor Mills. Thanks for having me. So, Eleanor, are you sitting uncomfortably? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not sitting on the cactus, it's quite comfortable. It's quite a comfortable <laughs> velvet chair, but I feel relatively trepidatious about what you might ask me. Excellent. That, well, that's good. <laughs> so it's evident you've had a big and successful career journey, but I want to take you back to that moment in 2020 when you were sitting on the bench with your friend. Can you share what happened? Yeah, it was a bit of a low point. So we can we can have an arc on this interview. You can start with me at my my lowest ebb. So as as you said, I'd spent um, over two decades at the Sunday Times. I'd been an award winning editor, and then as often happens in media, a new load of management came in. There was a new broom, and basically all of us who'd been part of a particular regime at the Sunday Times at the top went, and it was a real moment of wow, you know, who am I without this big job? Mm. Who am I without this Game of Thrones kind of cloak of power with all its gold insignia and its kind of heaviness? And taking it off, I think doing those kind of jobs for so long, it really becomes your identity. And it's such a kind of 24-7 project being a kind of big news kind of executive that you are on it all the time. So it's mm. not just a kind of nine-to-five job. It's a, it's a kind of passion. It's a vocation. So when you suddenly stop doing that, I felt a bit like one of those Indian gods with like 16 arms and you know nothing and, and you know nothing nothing to do you know so mm-hmm. it was a it was a very weird adjustment and on top of that it was covid it was a pandemic and my big daughter was going off to university and i suddenly really had one of those moments of profound shift where you think crikey everything that i thought i was or i thought my life was about has suddenly gone who am i what am i where do i 
go from here. And the bench that you refer to is a in a very grotty park, a park around the back of my house in uh, Kentish Town. And I met my really old and dear friend Tiffany Dark, who worked with was the editor of the Star Section on the Sunday Times, godmother to my daughter. And she was like, "How are you, Elsie?" And I burst into tears. And I was like, "Actually, I'm terrible. I feel completely lost. I don't know who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do." Um, and we came up with a plan. And actually, kind of out of that came this idea for Noon. So noon, noon.org.uk is my platform for what I call Queen Ages, women in midlife. And what I was trying to create was the site that I needed at that moment. I was like, I'm 50. I've really been at the top of my game. I'm now having to completely recreate what does that look like? How do I do that? There was no conversation around it at all at that point. And I was really interested in how do I create a new chapter? How do I pivot um, out of this life into something new? What does it mean to become a new person at 50? I was very determined I didn't want to go back into being a media executive at another newspaper or something. I really felt that I'd had enough of that. And I became a founder and I set up my own company, which is a really exciting journey. And I got investors and we built it up. And it's jolly scary setting up your own site. And I set it up on this story of my own reinvention of my own pivot. And I'm a great believer in the power of storytelling and the power of sharing one's own kind of emotional uncomfortableness. And I wrote about it in The Telegraph and the piece had thousands, tens of thousands of kind of hits. And I suddenly thought, I mean, I've known because I've been a columnist on the Sunday Times for a long time as well, that if you if you really write from the heart, if you really communicate something which you really care about and you really mean it, people will always respond to that. And what I also saw was that there were a lot of people in the same situation as me hitting this kind of midlife doldrums and thinking, how do I reinvent? And in the 100-year life, 50 is only halfway through. It's the midday point. It's why I called my site Noon. And I just suddenly thought, we're not on the shelf. We're not done. There's so much more that we can do from this point. And I became really passionate about helping other people through that journey of recreation. So just going back to that moment on the bench, yeah. which I think involves some pims. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want the full nitty gritty deal? Yeah, okay. I do, so it was because really... I had a moment. Okay. Mine was warm wine okay. <laughs> and similar time as well. Okay. That feeling of what's next. Yeah, so I it was a really, so I, I was just really lost. And I think that we all have moments in our lives yeah. where we're really lost. I mean, I've, I've seen it with my kids recently where they've kind of had relationships which have ended and they're suddenly really in free fall. Everything that they thought was kind of part of their life suddenly goes. Mm -hmm. And I really had one of those moments professionally. I really felt like I died and I was kind of hunkering down at home. I watched a lot of episodes of The Crown. I was just like kind of trying to process it. And then I got COVID really badly as well. I felt oh. absolutely dreadful. And I'm sure that was all psychological. So I was in bed for really feeling weak for like two weeks and then for another two weeks feeling pretty rough. And my friend Tiff, it was also when no one was supposed to be meeting anyone. Mm -hmm. So it was a real perfect storm of if you're very kind of sociable like I am to suddenly have no one kind of to talk to, to be stuck at home, to have no job. I mean, it was it was a very weird, destabilizing yeah. time. Mm -hmm. And Tiff was like, and I, Tiff was like, please come and meet me for a drink. And I was like, and I just can't, I can't. And she was like, come on, you know, I'll meet you at the on the bench. And I got there and she had a Tesco's bag full of four cans of kind of warm pims I love it. and it was noon on a Monday and there we were sitting like two tramps kind of on this bench in a you know with a really grotty park with kind of graffiti and smelling of piss and the dogs kind of you know running around sitting there on the 
bench drinking pims like two winos at 12 o'clock at midday. Oh, I think there's nothing wrong with that, quite but frankly. But it was, it was really <laughs> cathartic because it yeah. was one of those moments, I think sometimes you really need to hit rock bottom. She was like, how are you? And usually if someone asks me how you are, I'd always try and give them a, a good account. I'm really naturally a, a optimistic, a bully and kind of jolly. Mm. And I really, I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I remember really trying to say something positive and then just really collapsing and and crying and her going, you know, it's going to be all right. And the, the the thing that she said, which was really important, was that it was okay to be finding it tough. Yeah. That that change is difficult. Mm. And I think that that's not something that we hear enough in our society. And actually, everything that everyone, loads of people said, oh, you know, um, one of my old bosses used to call me Bubbles. He's like, oh, Bubbles, you'll bounce back. It'll be the making of you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that just felt like more pressure. And actually to be told change is difficult, it's okay to be finding it tough, was I think it's the best thing you can say to anyone who's in that situation. I think what I've really learned over the last kind of three years is is how to be a lot kinder to myself mm-hmm. and just kind of go, you know, to stop Stop driving yourself so hard. This is difficult. It is going to take a minute to kind of reboot. But actually, I and I really know this, that by sharing that vulnerability and kind of talking about it, you allow other people to share theirs too. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's through creating those safe spaces, those safe and, and comfortable spaces where you feel you truly can be yourself. And that means it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, but, but it's really hard to do really that, particularly encouraged. if you've been a successful, yeah. you know, your brand is kind of successful, jolly optimistic. Yeah. And then you go, actually, I'm really suffering. I'm in a bad place and it's horrible and I don't know who I am anymore and I feel like I've died. That That's a really hard thing to get comfortable with. I think yeah. it's, with, with this, co- yeah. this podcast is all about, you know, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's taken me a long time to be able to say, yeah, I was made redundant from my job and I had a really shit time. You know, that's yeah. that's a really hard thing to admit if everything that you done has always been about projecting success but you doing that it's going to enable other people to say yeah absolutely. me too yeah it totally does hard. And, but but I, I think it's worth saying to people and I do quite a lot of um I do quite a lot of coaching now where I talk to people about what their story is um and I, I was doing something very senior woman and a big management consultant who said that she'd been she'd grown up on on the street she'd been homeless she'd been in and out of kind of hostels she hadn't had anywhere to live and she'd made it to university into the top of this firm and I said that is the most incredible story do you have any idea how inspirational that is for other people and she said she had never talked about it because she was so ashamed so I think that there's also, and I really felt, I felt ashamed about admitting that I'd been made redundant, that I hadn't been successful. So I think that there's something in this kind of being uncomfortable bit is that also you have to, you have to kind of get through that barrier of feeling ashamed about not projecting a kind of successful front. Yeah. But only by doing that do you allow other people to really share their truth as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I can really resonate because after a 20-odd year career where probably hadn't had more than two weeks off in all that time, in those decades, yeah, I also found myself, through choice, um, making a choice that I wanted to start my own business, but through never having time for myself, never always being on, mm. all of a sudden I was like... Right, I've just started my own business, but I'm not giving myself any time. Mm. It's really hard when you become an entrepreneur to pause. And I think we have to give ourselves time to pause Mm. between one chapter ending and the other beginning. Yeah, in that fallow period is regeneration. And that we have to be, we have to allow ourselves to do that, or you can't birth something new. 
and from that regeneration and that that moment that mm. what you you know say was it was quite a low moment came you starting this amazing business that well quite frankly has, has been very successful <laughs> and it's got a really brilliant community which when I started reading all about it just made me go I want to be in that community <laughs> I want to be a queen ager which you now tell me I can be which I'm very excited you about. You can definitely <laughs> be a queen ager. So uh, I'm really glad that they had had that effect on you because what yes. I was trying to create was a club for those of us in midlife which you might actually want to be part of. Yeah. I mean I don't someone came up with a terror I mean I like queen ager someone suggested to me the other day a name called the Menno Posse. I can't tell you how much I don't want to be in the Menno Posse. No. I mean, you know, I'm totally up for doctors knowing what they're talking about. Until two years ago, most doctors didn't have any mandatory training in menopause. So I totally think there's a health equity piece there. But I do not want to be seen through that menopausal lens. I talk about queen agers not walking hot flushes. Because I think in all this, the the kind of taboo busting around menopause, which is really necessary, yeah. there's, a, there's become such a fixation on it that women in midlife are seen entirely through a kind of hot pink sweat menopause yeah. kind of lens and I really don't think that that's helpful to us at all so I'm really I'm, I'm all for banging the drum of the queen ager and I think that from the research that we've done menopause is an important kind of chunk of what people are going through at this point but it's by no means actually the biggest or the kind of you know the, the most important thing that um, we did a big piece of research with Noon and the management consultants Accenture. We've, done the, we've got the biggest study of women, 45 to 60, what mm. we call queen ages. And what we find in that is that over half of the women have hit five big life events by the time they hit 50. And that often they all come together. And that's divorce, bereavement, redundancy, um, elderly parents coming to bits, teenagers failing to launch that kind of epidemic of anxiety that we're seeing in Gen Z, anorexia, anxiety disorders, and people having to really take time out to deal with that their own health issues menopause you know some domestic abuse bankruptcy mm. but if you kind of look at all of those things the, the menopause bit is is one of those but what really seems to derail women at this point is the, the what we call the midlife collision all those things hitting at once um, and that that's what seems to happen to people a bit like for me where you know, you're sailing along, it's all fine. And then suddenly everything everything shifts. It's like kind of comes out of a kind of blue sky that suddenly everything that you thought was solid kind of crumbles and you have to reinvent. And what I've seen since I've started really studying this and talking to people about it is it happens to, it happens to everyone. And yet in our culture, we don't talk about it. Um, and also we have to all start recalibrating how we're going to think about our lives in the hundred year life 50 is only halfway through and we're all going to have to do more pivots and transitions into becoming something else because the old model of you know get educated go and work somewhere for years and years and then retire that just doesn't work anymore mm. that maybe works if you if we're only living till 70 mm. but it doesn't work if we're living to 100 so actually i think we need a whole new way of thinking about our lives so it's kind of zero to 25 we talk about that as kind of grow it's when you get educated to 25 to 50 is the age of achievement. And that was very much my years at the Sunday Times. You're ticking all the boxes that your parents, your cultural kind of heritage tells you are important. So get married, get a house, get a job, kind of get some stuff, maybe get some kids. That's all that 25 to 50 bit. Mm. But what I think is really interesting is that this new phase of life between 50 and 75 which is new for me. That's the kind of queen age, a sweet spot. And we haven't had 
health and vitality and all the things that we now take for granted in that period of life ever before, really, in, in humanity's history. So that 50 to 75, I call the, the age of becoming. And that's all about really becoming the people we really truly are, the people that we want always wanted to be. Mm. Um, and using that time as a real, I think it's a real kind of dividend. I, I think about it was when we come into our prime. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm really interested in this whole Queen Age piece, because I think that there's such a huge amount of self-development which happens there. Mm. And that we spent so much time ticking all these achievement boxes that actually often we've kind of forgotten who we really are or what we really want. And I see so many women in my noon um, retreats and events and come to in my noon circles who've really lost touch with who they are, what makes them tick, what they love. Um, it's really interesting in the noon circles, I say to say to people, you know, what brings you joy? What do you really love doing? Because for me in the reinvention, that's really been the focus. I, I now go and swim every day in the pond. I swim in the cold pond and I'm really reconnected with nature and I spend a lot more time kind of with myself. But that has allowed me to go on a different journey. So the first thing I ask the women is, what do you really love doing? Because it's through that love and that yeah. excitement and that joy of being alive that you find the necessary kind of energy and focus for the becoming. Yeah. Um, but yet so many women kind of look at me really puzzled going, oh, it's been so long since I've actually done anything for myself. I can't even remember what I like. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably quite an odd question for them almost yeah. because they're always thinking about everyone else and yeah. life and the struggle. Actually, what do I love? What yeah. do I truly love and yeah. what am I good at? Yeah. And people forget. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, and I think I had too. Yeah. I mean, I'd spent so many years juggling my job, my boss, my kids, my husband, you know, but my own needs or wants or desires were so far down the list that I'd kind of completely forgotten they existed. But the key to becoming the, the woman you always wanted to be in midlife is reconnecting with who you really are, the yeah. wellsprings of your true kind of joy and personality. A dear friend said to me recently, what are you doing today that prioritises you? Yeah, I love that. I was like, that's such a brilliant question. Mm. And actually, when you ask it to yourself, you go, really not much. <laughs> but I think, I think that that's the shift, you know. And yeah. I think also when your kids, my kids have both gone off to university and suddenly do have... You do have quite a lot more more time. Mm. I was joking with my friend Tiff the other day, actually, that I now do so much self-care. I hardly have any time to do anything else. I go and swim at some point Love during it. the day. I kind of I meditate for half an hour in the morning. I do my Pilates twice a week. But more than that, I actually try to I try to actually just kind of stand in my bathroom and like spend five minutes putting on some creams, even mm. if I'm in a hurry, just to kind of go, actually I'm worth I'm, I'm just worth this five minutes pause. And I think I really try and be a lot less rushed than I used to be. I lived the last 25 years of my life at, at full pelt, you know, foot down on the accelerator at all times. And so I really now try and give myself a bit of time and a bit of peace and a bit of expansion. Yeah. And I think that's really necessary. I think that's so important. I think it's also when you pause and you give yourself that time to recover that you can actually be more at your best. Definitely. And and I think you also have more um, capacity to help other people. Yeah. And you're kind of more, I, I like to feel, I think I feel much more at ease with myself now. And that's something mm. that we don't really think about in relation to women. Um, that kind of sense of, of being really like truly happy with who you are and what you're doing and, and your life and it feeling good. I mean, I think we're so programmed as women to to be striving, to be better, to be thinner, to be more successful, to be richer. So so I think that there's a real opportunity at 50 to become 
comfortable with who you are to maybe lay down a bit of the striving. And I also think that one of the things that queen ages can role model to younger women is just that sense of kind of ease with yourself, not in a conceited way, but just feeling I'm okay. Um, I'm, you know, it's all right to be me. Um, I give myself permission to be me, not to feel like I've got to be more, less, better, different, shinier, that it's just okay to be you and that you can feel quite good about that. And that, you know, all those years, you know, all those years of achievement, if they count for anything, should make you feel like, well, I've ticked enough of those boxes. Now I can really do what I want to do. Yeah. So that brings me nicely on to what makes you truly uncomfortable, Elena? Okay, so we've done the nice bit. So what <laughs> makes... to the ease and yeah. the relaxing. Yeah, no, I was feeling all, all chilled. So what makes me really cross, what makes me feel really uncomfortable is the way that older women in our society are seen as second-class citizens. And having spent so much of my life in the media and now, you know, running a platform which also kind of advises brands on how to speak to women in midlife, I feel really furious with the way that queen ages are made to feel invisible by our society. So over 60% of the women that we surveyed said that they felt invisible, invisible to brands particularly. And there is a sense in our society that men age like fine wine. You know, they're seen as getting better with age or silver foxes and all that, all that George Clooney kind of rubbish. And women are seen to age like peaches, one wrinkle and we're in the bin. And I think that that is an absolutely profound problem in our society. It's one which is created by the media, by marketing agencies, by advertising, because they don't represent older women, or if they do, they don't represent them authentically. And it's also a massive missed opportunity for brands because my queen agers say 75% of them say that they would be much more likely to buy from a brand which represented them authentically. And these women, 45 to 65 in the UK, are behind 93% of all household consumer spending decisions because they're buying stuff not just for themselves, but for their parents and for their kids. Um, a lot of them actually at 50 are still really quite in the trenches of motherhood. A lot of women in my generation didn't have kids till they were like 40, 42. So at 50, you can have like a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 21-year-old like mine or a 30-year-old and be a granny. So these women are such a kind of important kind of fulcrum. Um, Forbes magazine calls them super consumers. And yet we are almost invisible to brands. And so if we're talking about what makes me uncomfortable, I mean, I used to do a lot of trotting around media agencies, banging the drum for print in my days as editorial director at the Sunday Times. And I I knew that the buyers in the media agency generally tended to be in their early 20s. Um, actually, if you look at the statistics around your industry, um, only 6% um, of people are over 50. And of those, only 2% are women over 50. So if you think that actually now older people in our society have got way more money than younger people, by not recognising and by whacking all the over 50s into the same over 50s box, which is what most campaigns do, they're missing a huge gradation of different kinds of over 50s with a phenomenal spending power. Over 50s control 60% of the wealth and appear in 12% of adverts. So there's a real mismatch here between where the money is and how brands are seeing them. And this is about gendered ageism. So I thought when I first started doing this, that just pointing up how much money queen ages had to spend would be enough. In one of the women in the research is a queen ager. She's 51. She works for a law firm. She's a partner. She doesn't have kids. And she said to me, I'm single. I am child-free. I am disposable income-arama. And no brands are talking to me at all. 
So that, if I'm talking about what makes me really cross, it's the lack of representation in our society of, of older women, the demonization of them in the kind of broader culture. If you think about the kind of Disney representation of older women, you've got um, the, the kind of wicked stepmother in Snow White. You've got the ghastly stepmother in or mother, you know, mummy knows best in Tangled. Um, you've got um, kind of Cruella de Vil. I mean, the, the, where are the tropes in our society of older women inhabiting ease, wisdom, kind of benevolence, uh, being role models for younger women. So going back to brands, because that seems to be a big part of where you feel really cross and uncomfortable mm. in that they're not representing the, the midlife. It, it's not just brands. It's, I mean, it's newspapers it's, it's, as well. It's media as well. Yeah. It's a distorted reality. Yeah. And I, I, I completely take that. But just, just on, the, on the brands point, why do you think that is? Because I read a lot about not enough representation within agencies and brands. Yeah, well, that's why I started off with the age yeah, that yeah, they're on. So, I mean, so I think lack of representation is going to mean that that voice is not in the room. And if we think about just recently at the COVID inquiry, mm. all the kind of the fuss around Helen McNamara being the only woman in the room going, hang on, domestic violence, hang on, mothers looking after children who were being homeschooled, that that voice of women was not being heard. I think you've got a similar situation going on within the marketing and media industry in that the people who are making the decisions off and around campaigns are not thinking about older women because the older women are not in the room because they've all been whacked as soon as they hit 49. And why do you think that is, that the older women are not in the room or the, or the women in midlife uh, are not in the room? Well, I, I can tell you exactly why. So I think it's a mixture of gendered ageism mm. within the media, which mm. is really, so for those of you who haven't heard that term before, that's where ageism meets sexism. And I really saw that as a newspaper editor. I was the editor of the Sunday Times magazine. We had a shoot with a very beautiful, powerful actress we'd shot in black and white in Paris. And I had a massive battle with the editor to get those on the cover of the mag. He was going, oh, can't we have her when she was younger? I used to have a picture of her on my wall, da, da, da. And I was like, no, the whole point is she's now in her 70s and she still looks great. We need to see Celebrate. these kind of women. Yeah. But it was very hard in newspapers to get pictures of older women or stories about older women into the papers. There was a real culture of women being there to, as an old picture editor once said to me, brighten up a page. Brighten up the page, love! Which meant put in a picture of a pretty girl. In the business section, it would be full of old blokes, except for, you know, say one picture of a model on the catwalk, which they'd used to illustrate a Louis Vuitton story or something. So there was very much a sense that women were used as eye candy. I mean, think about the history of that in advertising. Endless cars with a kind of naked woman draped across the bonnet. I think we've still got the end of that. And I also think that when you do get older women being used in kind of marketing, it's never women who actually look like the women that I represent. So you're allowed to be a 50-year-old as long as you still look kind of 25. You know, if you look like Amanda Holden, that's an acceptable face of being 50. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Helen or Helen Mirren. I know they're older, yeah. but... Yeah. Um, and fashion is always clever at using the real outliers on this. So we mm. had the 100-something woman on the cover of Vogue from the Far East. We've had Maggie Smith now posing with Loe handbags. But that's, that's a bit like, you know, using Lizzo in campaigns. They, fashion loves kind of extremes. But what they're not doing is just routinely Consistent. representing, consistently representing queen ages as they are. This is really interesting. Do you think there's any examples of when brands are doing it well, where they're 
representing in the right way. Yeah. So just recently, I've loved the JD Williams campaign, uh, which is for like kind of catalogue fashion, but they're really using older women in a new kind of a way. So they actually look quite representative and they're talking about how they're going for, you know, a drink with a lover or they're going off on a holiday. And that is beginning to get that sense of queen ages coming into their prime, having this disposable income kind of, and it actually being quite fun to be in your 50s. Like I really want to change the narrative so that younger women look forward to being 50 is when they become queen ages, when it all gets good, when you come into your prime. So that's the first ad I've seen which is doing that. And then there was another clever one by um, Seaborn Cruisers, which is done by a collection of people called Grace Collective in Los Angeles, who are all female in their mid-50s or 60s creative directors. And they've done this really good campaign, which is about queen ager who's choosing the cruise that she's deserved. So it's gone through like all those mornings where you've heaved yourself out of bed to kind of go to the office. And now you deserve this holiday. But that is such a refreshing change to the normal. I mean, it used to be that the only thing that anyone ever advertised at Midlife Women was tenor incontinence pants or that appalling life insurance where it's always a silver fox, silver couple kind of walking down the beach hand in hand. And given that like 40% of my women are on their own. You can see how that really backfires. So there's a real tin ear around these women and it's a really missed opportunity and it all piles into a media, and I mean media in the kind of broader sense of media marketing and advertising narrative that older women should kind of just shut up and go away and you know, kind of get on with it, that their opinions aren't valuable, that they're not valuable, that we don't want to see them, that they're somehow not aspirational. And I find that really offensive. I think from a kind of feminist point of view, the way that patriarchy values women is for their um, fecundity, i.e. can they have children. I'm glad and you explained their, that word. Yeah. <laughs> So fecundity and being fecund is, you know, being fertile, being able to have kids. So fecundity and kind of beauty. And therefore, if you if you look through the patriarchal lens, then there is no value on an older woman because they haven't got those two qualities. So what I'm arguing for is a revaluation of what qualities we value in women. And if you think about it, if you think of women as being like a rainbow, their kind of their hotness and their fertility are only two strands of the rainbow. There's so many others, creativity, intelligence, kind of caring, emotion, just you know, being a human being, all those other things. You wouldn't look at a man and only value him for the fact that he can father children and that he's handsome. We'd look at all those other qualities. So what I'm really pushing for is a bigger shift in how we value women and what we value them for. And this for me comes to an absolute, the kind of spearhead of that conversation is around how do we talk about and value older women and how do we see them in our society and how do we celebrate them? And the answer is at the moment, we don't and we should. So massive, massive missed opportunity and given also the purchasing power within this group as well, you'd almost question, well, why not? And and I guess that brings me on to, given that a large part of this audience will be from the marketing world, given, you know, what I used to do (laughs) and what I still do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, What what advice would you give to CMOs, marketeers that are listening to this to, to really... Well, I think I think the first thing is for it to be on their agenda. Um, And I'm not criticising them for it, for it not having been on their agenda thus far, because the Queen Ages are a new and pioneering 
cohort. We have never had women like this hitting midlife before. And it's there in the statistics. So in the 2019 census, women over 40 started earning more money than women under 40 for the first time ever. Yeah, so that's really recent that this old, these older women have actually been controlling this amount of money. So, so there's that aspect. So we're the first generation who entered the workforce in equal numbers with men, kind of in the early '90s, entered the professions in the same um, in the same proportions and fifty-fifty, and have worked all the way through. Yeah. So, but that's the thing. You know, we really are the point of the spear. We queen agers. We're a real force in society. It's because of women like us that we've got maternity leave protection. And when I had my first baby, you're only allowed to take like, I think, five, six months off. By the time I had the second, I could take up to a year. So so these changes are really new. And so it's not really surprising that queen agers and the power of queen agers is just coming to the fore now. It's why we're getting the menopause conversation because, you know, men, women of Davina or whatever are getting to this point and going, what? None of this is sorted. But I also think that that can play into a gendered ageist narrative around women, that always, if you're a feminist, then society tries to put women in a, in a kind of hysterical biological box. The Victorians, for instance, saw women as being on a level with children or dogs, that because of our wombs, we were too hysterical. And hysteria comes from the Latin word for womb. We were too kind of emotionally kind of incontinent and unstable to be trusted with decisions like men. That's why the Victorians didn't educate women. They didn't allow them to go to university and all of those kind of things. So there's a very strong kind of push in the culture towards distrusting women because of their biology. And the point about feminism has been that we don't define women just by their biology. There's a problem for me about everything around queen ages becoming about menopause, because I think it puts us back into a sweaty menopausal box, kind of hysterical box, just when we should be taking up the big jobs and kind of moving into our prime. And for a lot of women, by the time they hit 50, their kids have grown up. So actually that bit between 50 and 75 should be the absolute highlight of their career. It's certainly the peak of their kind of spending power. And yet too many are being either whacked from their organisations like I was, or are what my friend Dr. Lucy Ryan, who's just written this brilliant book called Revolting Women, talks about as quiet quitting. So she's done a really interesting study about why women are leaving the workforce in such droves at 50. And that's looking at, they, they don't feel appreciated or seen by their companies in the same way that they don't feel appreciated or seen by society. And women over 50 are setting up their own businesses in higher numbers than any other demographic. And that's because of this shift into autonomy. It's that shift into becoming. It's not wanting to be pleasing um, to you kind of more kind of senior male bosses, knowing that you're good and you've got experience and you know what you're doing and not just being prepared to kind of shut up and play nicely anymore. Just saying, I'm, I'm too old and too ugly for this. I just want to kind of get on and do my own thing. And then there's another bit, which is Women entered the professions at the same num same you know in the same proportions as men in the nineties. But if you look at the top of business, the top of law, the top of industry, the top of politics, there's still only about 14 percent female leaders. So if you look at business, we've got forty percent of women on boards, but only twelve percent of those are women executives with levers. Lots of them are non-executive directors. Yeah. So at the top of all of our organisations, it's still a very male world. I'd like to talk to you about what must have been a prickly moment in your career, when you resigned from the Society of Editors Board. Why did you make that decision? It was all about racism. It was about Meghan and Harry and the way that the newspapers, particularly the tabloids, had been covering the kind of Meghan-Kate stuff. 
And the chap who was then the chair of the Society of Editors popped up on Radio 4 without having consulted any of the board saying, there is no racism in the British press. This is all nonsense. You know, um, Meghan and Harry complaining about nothing. And I was really furious about that because as chair of women in journalism, I'd commissioned a big study about diversity or the lack of diversity in the British press, which showed that in the wake of the George Floyd murder, not a single article had been written on the front pages of the UK newspapers in the following two weeks by a black journalist. And also that the the numbers of black or people of colour editing was minimal, like less than 1% of editors in the this is the newspapers were were black. There were some people of colour editors, but no. And in the wake of the George Floyd, particularly, there was there was a complete lack of representation of black editors or writers within the British press. So I thought the fact that this guy had taken it on himself to go and speak for the whole society of editors, saying that there was no racism, really annoyed me because I thought that was wrong. And, and it was wrong. It, it was wrong. It was wrong. <laughs> and then um, he came back to the board, and we were all like, "Well, that won't do." You know, are you going to apologise? Are you going to clarify? Are you going to say that the board disagreed? And on that board, it's worth saying that a lot of the people on it are placemen for the particular newspaper. So I'd originally gone on it as the News UK person, but I'd continued on it because I was chair of women in journalism under my own aegis. So I was actually one of the few people who could resign on principle. And I did. I, I wrote a thing on LinkedIn explaining why I'd resigned, saying that because of the lack of representation of people of colour in the British press, in the British press, in the newspapers, there was structural racism because there was no one arguing for that point of view or the Megan point of view in the offices of the newspapers who were running this bilge. And that therefore it did, it, it, there was structural racism in the British press. And I wasn't happy for him to stand stand up representing me saying that there wasn't. So I resigned on principle. And it was one of the most humbling things that I've ever done because the response from people all over the world was just incredible. That post is still getting hits on LinkedIn. It's had like about 650,000 likes and shares and all that kind of thing. And I got emails from people everywhere going, I can't tell you how much it means to me as a person of colour to hear somebody in the belly of the beast of the British media admit that there is no representation there and that the papers are racist or some of the papers are racist in their coverage. And I I felt really proud of that. I mean, it was an uncomfortable moment, but it was one of those moments where it really laid bare to me how much I love my post-corporate existence because I am no longer shackled. I feel like for the last 25 years, I've kind of had my arms tied behind my back in terms of what I could and couldn't say, that I was always quite a round, a kind of square, quite round a peg anyway, in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, because I was always slightly more left-wing than the newspapers that I worked for. And I was a woman when I was kind of in a minority and I just had a very different worldview. So for me to actually be able to speak up on the things that I care about and use my voice to speak my truth, I actually now feel is the most important part of my post-Sunday Times life. And it's the thing, that independence, I wouldn't give up at all now for anything. It's why I wouldn't want to go and go and work for a big organisation. I've discovered that the freedom to use my own voice and speak out on what matters to me is actually the most important thing of all. And that whole Society of Editors row really made me see that. And I felt really proud of having done that. It was the right thing to do. And I felt really pleased that I now have the freedom to 
kind of speak on conscience and very few of us do. I love that you took a stand and I also love to hear and I saw because I went and looked at the LinkedIn posts and yeah. the, the, the comments and the support yeah. that, that you received. But what was the response from the the board of editors and... and, and oh, they were pretty cross. Right. I mean, I haven't really had very much contact with them since. But, well, I mean, to be fair, quite a few of my fellow board members completely back to what I was doing. That was my other question. Yeah. Because no, no, they would have done, but when they you couldn't... take a stand like that. Yeah. No, there were a lot of them, particularly the people of colour on the board, who were absolutely behind what I was doing. And a lot of them reached out to me privately mm. and said, I'm so glad that you've done that. But I think that that's interesting is that when you're representing yourself and your freedom of conscience, as opposed to representing a kind of media group. So there were some people there who felt really strongly about it, but couldn't but walk. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's important to know and I also it's also why I feel so passionately about talking about this whole thing around older women and gendered ageism mm. because I think that a lot of women who are still kind of hanging on by their fingernails and in, in these institutions feel under such pressure to go on looking young being groovy being with it not to make a fuss to go on being pleasing so they don't lose their jobs that they're actually the last people who are gonna speak up and challenge it. It's so true. I was speaking to a friend the other day in the industry who has been in a career for 20, 30 years in a, in a big brand and always felt like such an authentic leader. But she said to me, I've realised I wasn't myself. Mm. I wasn't my true self. No. Because I didn't feel I could be. No, you can't be. You can't be in that kind of environment. And I also think that a lot of people don't understand how a lot of brands which ostensibly are pretending to represent women, and I'm thinking particularly of kind of beauty and fashion brands, are actually all run by men. Um, so true. You know, <laughs> as soon as you get beyond a kind of slightly more junior level, all the people who are making the decisions are blokes. And a really big, iconic brand came to me interested in Queen Age, saying, yeah, we really want to do something around aging women. We've done lots of stuff about representation, but this is the kind of missing link. Mm. And I had a lot of conversations with them. And then they came back to me and they were like, we just can't get any of this or any of these pictures past the, the male board. When I talk about gendered ageism and the kind of ageism meets sexism and how society values women, I've seen it again and again because you go into organisations and you talk to queen agers and they're like, I totally get it. This is brilliant. We've got all these customers. And then they take it one rung higher, say to the board, which is like predominantly men, and it gets knocked out. Because there's a really strong sense, I think, amongst a lot of those kind of male CEOs or CMOs, they'd much rather have kind of Kim Kardashian sashaying into their advert than, you know, a kind of bunch of queen agers. So it becomes not about actually what will best represent the brand or what would actually sell the most stuff, but who the CEO would quite like to have on his table at Cannes. And that happens again and again and again. We need to start driving change and it sounds like you are. And I really hope that the marketeers and the CEOs that are listening really take notice if we can pinpoint one moment one prickly moment that that made you feel truly uncomfortable what would it be well I still hate having to admit that I was made redundant I really hate that even now I mean I was really successful at my job I won loads of prizes I, the day that I left the Sunday Times my interview with Sheryl Sandberg which was a global exclusive was on the cover so there's something for me I've always been really competitive um, and I'm really driven and I can't I still hate the idea that I was kind of really successful and I was still fired it just it doesn't add up kind of in my mind because I think we were all fed a myth that if you were really good at your job 
that would kind of protect you. And of course, once you get to a certain point, the air is thin and it doesn't protect you. It doesn't matter how you don't get you don't get whacked because you're no good. You get whacked because you know your things change. Your face doesn't fit anymore. But there's there's a bit of me that still finds that like really unfair and uncomfortable. Um, so so yes, that that still pinches. I bet. And what about since you started noon? Has there been some uncomfortable moments? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I write about ageism. So I went to this big media breakfast for kind of media founders. And I was coming down in the lift and there were some I know, some VC people kind of talking about paywalls or whatever. And so I chucked something into the conversation because as editorial director of the Sunday Times, I know quite a lot about a paywall. Having done I that for a do. lot of years. And they went, oh, that's quite smart. You know, who are you? You know, what do you do now? And I said, well, you know, I was executive for a long time and and they said oh what, what do you do now and I said oh well, I've just set up my own um, media company it's called Noon and explained a bit about it and they went wow how amazing that a woman of your age has set up her own company and what was brilliant about that in a way was they meant it as such a compliment these two kind of 30 something blokes you know they, were, they weren't trying to be like bloody patronising and annoying they thought they were going oh well done you you know but I just thought it was so it was so infuriating because if I think about my contemporaries from the from the time Sunday Times, like William Lewis, who's just become publisher of the Washington Post, or James Harding, who set up Tortoise, no one would turn to them and say, "Oh, how amazing that you set up your own media yeah, company." Man of your age, a man of your age. It's like, well, I've done twenty five years as a very senior executive in the British media. Why shouldn't I set up my own media company? But because I'm a woman, they thought that was amazing, and that really goes to the heart of a lot of stuff. So if you think that over uh, only less than one. 1% of venture capital funding is going to female founders. Yeah. 1% yeah. globally, and it's getting worse since the pandemic. And if you think those are the attitudes of the people who are handing out the money, it's not too surprising. So I think gendered ageism is a real thing in our society, and it impacts women over and over again in myriad ways, whether it's us trying to get funding as entrepreneurs, whether it's us being seen by brands, where if you look at the gender pension gap, women have got far less money as they retire than men because financial institutions don't talk to them in a way that they can understand or that fits in with their lives. Gendered ageism is real and punishing and it's one of those things that we need to eradicate. In my Time as a journalist, I've seen a completely different story told around race. We touched on that earlier. We've seen a completely different story told around sexuality and identity. For me, the next piece of this jigsaw is challenging gendered ageism and making it as unconscionable to make a derogatory comment about a kind of woman's age or how she looks or that she's becoming invisible as it would be to say something racist. And how did you respond to that, to those chaps at the... The gherkin. Oh, to be honest, in the moment, the esprit d'escalier afterwards, I was like, you fuckers. But um, in the moment, <laughs> I was just, I, I was so flabbergasted yeah, it, by it. I just didn't even flabbergasted. And I'm usually me. quite quick at, with yeah. a response, but I was so flabbergasted that I just didn't know what to say. And partly because it was offered up with such kind of enthusiasm, like they were like patting me on the back. Yeah. Oh, clever you. Yeah. How amazing that someone like you could set up a company. So I was a bit like, Oh, but, you know, I'm not like 99. And even if I was, that would be fine. And there's also loads of evidence now from America that older entrepreneurs are way more successful. They're like three times more likely to have a successful business than younger ones. Of course, because we've got experience and we can also back ourselves, etc. So that's not surprising. But that, again, is ageism. And then the, the intersectionality of the gendered ageism. And of course, if you bung in kind of race or disability or whatever it's even worse yeah but gendered ageism is real and it's something that we're not thinking about so for me that is a really really important kind of thing to put 
you know, all these marketeers listening, it's a really important thing just to have in your mind. We think about diversity, kind of race, sexuality, kind of, you know, color, all this stuff. Age is the bit of it which is always forgotten. But actually, as society lives longer, particularly for brands and for people trying to sell things, older people have got all the cash. So to bung them all in an over 50s bracket and kind of ignore them is crazy. It's a bit silly, really, because it feels like it's the age of opportunity. And I really hope that those chaps and others that have reacted in that way in a scenario like that are cringing right now. Yeah, because I hope so. Look at your success and what you're doing. <laughs> and it's amazing and it's inspiring. Thank um, you. I guess I just want to finish with why is it so important that brands represent queen ages trademarked by you but this midlife <laughs> brilliant audience where as you've already said so much disposable income but also consumer purchasing power as mm. well why is it so important because i think it would completely reshape the narrative we have about what why women are valued and i think it would hugely extend the runway for all those younger women coming up behind us. And I think to live in a society where women are told that they've got a sell-by date on their wrinkles, kind of 50, and then they're going to become invisible and not be valued anymore, is a massively grave injustice to half the population. But for your listeners, probably the thing that's going to get them motivated to do it is because there's a huge amount of money to be made there. The marketing firmament, I mean, take it from Sheryl Sandberg. She's the one who says that this is the most underserved and underserved and lucrative cohort in the whole of the marketing firmament. And it's crazy not to be talking to them. And on that note, <laughs> thank you. Where can we find out about Noon? Oh, so you can find out about Noon. You can come to the website, which is noon.org.uk. So it's noon as in the middle of the day. And my Queenager Substack, which is where all the fun happens, is on Substack, eleanormills.substack.com. And it's called The Queenager. And that's where you can sign up to become a member of Noon. So we run all sorts of retreats and events and circles for our members. And you become a member by signing up to The Queenager Substack. And then we run Noon Consulting, which is what talks to brands and helps um, companies retain their Queenagers as well. So we're a whole Noon world. So brands have no excuse, basically. No, we've got a really amazing team working with us on Noon. It's really not just me. And I think that this is hopefully really spearheading a revolution in the way that we see older women. Well, thank you. It's been eye-opening this chat really has been and inspiring and for me as someone that's just set up a couple of businesses I feel really empowered good to just go for it without the shackles which is a really beautiful thing thank you very much thank you for sitting on the prickly chair Eleanor and thank you for getting uncomfortable thanks very much for having me I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a fresh air production and the producers are the lovely Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh If you enjoyed our now award-winning podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us. And if you're really kind, leave us a review. We read them all and we really appreciate it. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with incredible people just like Eleanor. Thank you so much. Until next time.